Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 21 this morning, and we're going to continue our study in the vision of John's, well, John's description of the vision that he sees of the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. We're going to begin reading in verse 18, which is where we left off last week. We, uh, we, we've looked at this for the last two weeks. We looked at the first portion of chapter 21, and then just last week we began this particular this study of the new Jerusalem, and it's going to carry us all the way through the end of the chapter today. So I hope I've given you time to find your place in God's Word. Now let's read it, starting in verse 18. The wall, the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? before we study it together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for this gathering of worship. I thank you for the songs that we've sung and the the brothers and sisters who have led us with their gifts and instrumentation. I thank you for uh, the Sunday school and the the lessons on uh, how to walk with you. And Lord, I pray that you would just continue to bless our time together and let us focus on your word in a way that, that is profitable for your glory, and, but also for us as a, as a body. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see and to hear, but more importantly, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the truth and that you would change us because of that. Give us hope and confidence through Christ and accomplish your purpose through the preaching and teaching of your word now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we continue our study of John's description of the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, we are looking at the final city. We are looking at the eternal city, the eternal dwelling place where the people of God from every age will experience the glorified eternal life that 
that was purchased for us by Christ upon the cross. Now, I mentioned a few weeks ago that heaven is a real place, more real than anything we've ever known. And that can be somewhat confusing because in the description that we're seeing here, I'm also arguing that the description is highly symbolic. So how can it be real and symbolic at the same time? Some of you have even asked me some questions about this. Is heaven a real place or is it just a state of mind? Am I, am I going to understand and know? Is it going to be a place or is this just all something that we don't fully understand? Well, I do believe that both of those things are true. Let me try to explain that. The measurements that we've seen so far, all the, the numerology that we've studied throughout the book comes uh, and, and it, it applies itself right here. All these measurements have symbolic significance. The dimensions of the city have symbolic s- significance. The materials that are used to describe the city, they are also symbolic as we'll see today. The inhabitants of the city, all of these things hold symbolic importance. The city is like an amplified version of the temple of God on earth. The the holy of holies is expanded so that all of God's people will have direct access to God forever. That's part of what the symbol represents. And the city that we're looking at is completely invulnerable because it has this impregnable wall around it. And yet, the gates are always open. The gates are always opened and the foundations are adorned with beauty that's really hard for us to wrap our minds around. But don't let the symbolic description of the city cause you to think that heaven isn't a real place. The Bible speaks of heaven as the place where God dwells, an actual place, not simply a spiritual state of mind. Jesus promised to prepare a place for us. And he's referring to a real place that our resurrected bodies will inhabit. And the fact that we interpret the vision of heaven through symbolism doesn't mean that it isn't real. In fact, I would argue that where we see biblical symbolism, the point is not to say, well, this is not real. It's actually more real than we can fully understand. That's the way biblical symbols work. The illustrative force of symbolic descriptions is seen in that the illustrations always fall short of the reality. That's the way it happens. Uh, R.C. Sproul once said, The function of symbols is to point beyond themselves to a higher, more intense state of actuality than the symbol itself can contain. So when John describes heaven to us in the Revelation, there is symbolic significance to it, but the beauty and the, and the glory of the city itself is, is him trying to put mere human words on something that really cannot be explained. And, and there's, a, there's another side to this. The descriptions of hell are not going to be less severe than the symbols, but they will be more severe than this. That's how biblical symbolism works. There are no words that can accurately and adequately describe the existence that we will have when God comes in his glory, when we experience that glorified state, and when we are brought together with him for eternity. There's, there are no mere words that can do justice to the glory that we will experience at that time. He's trying, and there's much for us to learn here. 
And last week, we, we began our study in this vision, and we learned about some of the things regarding the city. We looked at the appearance of the city, and we looked at the, the importance of the measurements of the city. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the adornment of the city and the interior of the city. Now remember, this is one sermon in three different parts. So um, we're just going to jump right in to verse 18. So look back at verse 18. Let's focus in on the adornment of the city and see what it means for us. He says in verse 18 that the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Now I want you to think beyond this eternal vision and I want you to put your mind back in the temple in Jerusalem during Jesus' day. And you may remember this, you may have studied this, you may have seen illustrations of it in a study Bible or something like that, and, and you'll remember something about the temple. The temple structure itself is pretty massive, and there are various sections of the temple uh, structure, the temple mount, if you will. And, and it's broken up in a, in a specific way. For instance, there was an outer court where Gentiles could go. And, and there was a barrier, there was a wall between the court of the Gentiles and the next court. The next court would have been the, the inner court for the women. And then beyond that, there was another wall, and then there would be the court of Israel, where the Israelite men could go. And then there was another wall, and then inside that, there was a place where the priest, the, the, the priest would go to perform their duties. And there were all of these different walls that would separate the different sections and the different peoples in the world. And, and each of these courts were separated by those walls, but here we only see one wall. This vision is telling us that there's one wall, and it's not a wall running through the middle of the city dividing one group of people from another group of people. Old covenant saints are not separated from new covenant saints. The wall is not in the city, the wall is around the city. And all of the people of God from every age, from every covenant, from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue are all together in the city and the wall is surrounding it all. And that is symbolic. It's to help us understand what the gospel in eternity really has done. It's broken down every wall of division. In, in the heavenly Jerusalem, there is no division. Only unity, all of God's people together in unity with one another and with God. And John describes this outer wall of protection, this outer wall that contains all the unified body of people, and he, he describes it by using the word jasper. I don't know if any of you have a piece of jasper um, it, it could come in a bunch of different colors. Jasper most likely refers to a type of quartz that can be found in green and yellow and brown and red. And, and Jasper is significant in the Revelation because he's already mentioned it. John mentioned Jasper all the way back in Revelation 4 when he described the vision of God's throne. And, and when you put these things together, what he's trying to get across here, the point is that this stone reflects the glory and beauty of God's divine protection over the city. So this wall that surrounds the people of God, and it has this particular hue to it, it, it is it's symbolic of, of God's protection over the city. And as John gazes out over the wall to the inner part of the city, he notices gold, absolutely pure gold. Gold so pure that, that it's almost like you could look through it. It's just as clear as glass. I mentioned last week that 
the holy of holies, that most holy place, that inner sanctuary where the once a year sacrifice was made by the high priest. Well, that in Solomon's day, when Solomon built the temple, he adorned that entire holy of holies with gold. The walls, the floor, the ceiling, everything was gold. And that's the picture here. The, the, the picture of that holy of holies has been expanded to say that all of the heaven re, heavenly reality that we will experience is holy because that's where God dwells with his people. The most holy place is expanded to include not just one priest, one day a year to offer one sacrifice, but all of God's people always having access to God. And the gold, of course, reflects the beauty and the glory of this place because God is there. But there's more. Look at verse 19. It says, And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And I'm not going to try to do my southern slang on all of these different words again. You, you saw it, I read it. But all of these different jewels that are there, there's 12 different jewels. I mean, even the foundations of the, the wall are adorned with beauty that's almost indescribable. Now, some imagine that the 12 foundations represent 12 layers. You can think about it a couple of different ways. I, I described it last week as 12 foundation stones that stand out. Some would describe it differently as though the, the foundation that goes all the way around the city had 12 different colored layers. And, and I don't think that that's the way to interpret this because they use, John uses the language of the foundations being adorned. And that adornment gives us a different picture, not of layers of stone, but of stones being attached to the outer wall to show some particular significance. And the significance, I believe, is that the list of stones that we see here is not an, an exact replica of the stones we see on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Covenant, but the predominant, I mean, there's 12 of them, and I think it's eight or nine of them are the exact stones that were used. And the others that don't necessarily fall into that exact category are of a similar color and hue. And here's the point. The high priest would, would have to adorn himself and he would wear this, this breastplate. Are you familiar with this? And on that breastplate, there would be 12 different stones. And those 12 different stones represented the different tribes of Israel. It represented the people of God. And those stones even had a name written across them. And that priest would go into the holy place, into the presence of God, and that representation of the people of God would be upon him. And Aaron was the first high priest to wear that breast piece. And to wear it was a privilege. It meant that you were granted access into the holy of holies. And it also meant that you were allowed to be a representative of God's people to, before God while you were in there. But in the new heaven, in the new Jerusalem, the breast peace is not worn by one person. All of the people of God tread upon it all the time. That's the picture. That, that privilege of coming into the presence of God, that privilege for being a representative of the people of God in the presence of God is not something that one person uh, obtains. It's not something that one person is privileged with. All of the people of God are privileged in that way. Everyone within the walls has been ushered into the heavenly holy of holies. Everyone is in the presence of God. 
Now, I don't think that there's any particular individual significance to each of the stones. Some of you may have read some of that. Maybe you've, you've studied that. Maybe preachers have preached on that. And the, the red means the blood and the green means the this. I, I don't think that there's any particular significance to that. There may be. But I do think that there is a particular significance to them all being together. Not just that it reflects this uh, work that the high priest used to do, but when all of those colors come together, they form something that's familiar to us. There's a rainbow of color. And that rainbow of color reminds us of something. That rainbow of color reminds us of a unique promise that God made to his people all the way back in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 9, this was on the, on the backside of the flood. God, in judgment of mankind and mankind's sinful and evil ways, God judged the world in righteousness. And then on the other side of that judgment, having preserved Noah and his family, God made a promise. He made a very unique promise. He made a covenant promise. And then he gave a sign. He gave a symbol of that covenant promise. And here's the promise that he made. He said, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the sign of that promise, the sign of that covenant promise, was that God would put a rainbow in the sky to remind his people of his everlasting promise. And it's not a coincidence that there's a rainbow wall around the city of God that serves as a reminder of God's covenant promise. It's a sign that God keeps his promises, and it's also a sign that the storm of God's judgment is over. In the same way that back in Genesis chapter 9, the storm of God's judgment in the flood of the earth was over, at this point, the flood of God's wrath upon the world is over, and there is now peace, and it will never happen again. It's also important for us to remember that rainbows come out after the storm, which means that Noah and his family had to endure the storm in order to enjoy the promise that came after and in our lives as believers, we do the same thing. We endure the storms and remember the promise. And some of you are walking through storms right now. Storms that you didn't ask for, storms that you didn't anticipate. Maybe, like Jeff mentioned a couple of weeks in his sermon, maybe it's a storm that you didn't, you didn't cause. But you're walking through a, a particular storm and there are dark clouds everywhere you look and it's hard and it's difficult and it's frightful. And dear Christian, you need to remember the promise of God. You need to remember the presence of God. And you need to remember, just like we see here, that God's promise will not fail. The Bible tells us that His mercy is renewed every morning. Every morning. And His forgiveness? Well, that's eternal. That's what this picture is showing us. When Jesus was on the cross, the sky darkened because the storm was upon Him. He breathed his last breath, even as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He endured the wrath of God that we deserve so that the sunshine of God's eternal love and the rainbow of God's everlasting promise could comfort our hearts and minds today and every day until we see him. But there's more to this city. Look at verse 21. It says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates was made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Now, 
I know we all like to talk about the pearly gates and we like to think about it and there's probably a song or two in your mind about these pearly gates, but I honestly believe that these pearly gates are a really good example of the symbolic nature of this city and this book. It doesn't seem reasonable to conceive of 12 literal pearls large enough to be carved into gates for a wall that is approximately 216 feet high. These gates represent something. They represent an unimaginable value and an unimaginable beauty. How does that happen? How do, how do pearls represent value and beauty? Well, do you remember the pearl of great price? The parable of the pearl of great price back in Matthew 13? Upon finding this pearl of imminent, I mean, like infinite value, so to speak, the man sold everything he had just so that he could buy the field that the pearl was found in. And the point is that pearls are incredibly valuable. They're rare, they're beautiful, and they have immense value. And the point to the symbol in the city is that these gates are symbol of symbols of heaven's beauty and riches, but they also represent the ability to enter the kingdom of God. Remember, all the gates are open. No gate in all the world could be more valuable than that. One that gives us access to God. This vision of the heavenly Jerusalem is a vision of the people of God in our glorified state. The beauty is almost indescribable. We are, dis- we are described as being filled with color and light and glory. Because remember, this is a, dep- a depiction of the bride, the wife of the lamb. Ultimately, this is about the church. Every surface is like precious metal or rare gemstones or pearls of the greatest price. This is the church in her beauty. And that's not exactly the picture we see today, right? Today, we see the church in her imperfection, not in her beauty. At times, we see that beauty shine through. At times, we see that unity shine through. At times, we see that glory shine through. But, but given enough time, we'll see our imperfections. We'll share something in confidence that gets shared with someone we didn't intend to hear it. Someone will offend and not realize it or, or realize it and not care. Someone will overlook something that was important to us. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to correct someone. Someone's going to have a different, a different opinion on things. All of that happens, and all of that shows that we're not yet in that glorified state. We're in a state of imperfection, or of being flawed, still dealing with sin and brokenness. And our flaws at this particular period tend to be very glaring. Our weaknesses tend to shine more than our strengths, but But that shouldn't keep us from striving to love one another and believe the best about one another. As individual believers in Christ, whether you're the most mature saint in this room or or the, the least mature saint in this room, we should all together be striving to be our best and most Christ honoring self each day, while at the same time growing to extend grace and patience and kindness to our fellow sinner saints, because that's what we are. We're sinner saints on that journey to the celestial city. The primary barrier, here's a quote from Ray Ortland, the primary barrier to displaying the beauty of Jesus in our churches today comes from the way we reinsert ourselves into that sacred place that belongs only to Jesus. 
Let me say that again, because you may have a different opinion on what's the primary barrier. But he says this, and I think he's right. The primary barrier to displaying the beauty of Jesus in our churches today comes from the way we reinsert ourselves into that sacred place that belongs only to Jesus. You know what maintains unity in the body of Christ? Not the fact that you and I can agree on things and you and he can agree on things and she and she can agree on things, but that we all agree on the one thing. And the one thing is Jesus. And when our hearts are all tuned to him and tuned to his word and tuned to his love and tuned to his character and tuned to his grace and kindness and forgiveness, then a lot of the other little things that tend to rub us the wrong way just kind of pale in comparison. And when we, when we go off into our own little circles and we try to create this little affinity group over here that all agrees on everything and we exclude everyone else and we're not focused on Christ, well, that's disunity. And that happens all the time. When we take our opinions, and I, I'm using that word specifically, when we take our opinions not the clear teaching of Christ, and we impose those opinions or convictions on others and, and require them to follow our convictions as though it's a new law, then guess what we've done? We've inserted ourselves in the place that only Christ belongs. And that happens all the time. And, and the church is no longer reflecting a gospeled culture. It's now reflecting your own individual culture, the one that you're trying to create because of your opinions and convictions. Now, it's nothing wrong with you having convictions. The problem is not having convictions. The problem is not having opinions. The more you read, the more you study, the more you think, the more opinions and convictions you're going to form. The problem is when we impose those convictions and opinions on others as though it's a new law, and we try to bind the conscience of someone else. That's when all kinds of problems can come. And this happens, and I'm not going to pick on young believers necessarily, but it can happen a lot of times to younger and immature believers. That's not, it, that's not exclusive. I know some older saints that are pretty stubborn too. But it can happen, and what we need to do is we need to grow, and we need to mature in the faith. We need to grow and add to our faith the, the virtues that Christ calls us to including brotherly love and self-control and patience and being quick to listen and slow to speak. We need to remember and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves each day. When, when we have determined, when an individual has determined that they know best how everything should go and how everyone should think, then guess what they've done? They've forgotten that they are a sinner with imperfect knowledge who really desperately needs the grace of God. And we need to put the gospel before ourselves, not because we need to get saved every day, but because we need the gospel to continually humble us so that we can look at each other, not as some great person looking down on everyone else, but we're all on the same plane. The gospel cuts every one of us down to our knees. And we're all on the same plane. Now, some of us are a little further along in our maturity but that's the reality, and the gospel has that tendency to humble us, and we need to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. We need to remember that we are sinners in need of God's grace, and, and God supplies that, and we need to let the gospel hit the reset button on our hearts every day so that we can be more patient and more kind and, and, and more willing to love a brother or sister than we tend to be. 
And the culture of the church will display the glory of God and the gospel when God's grace in our hearts overwhelms us and transforms us and shapes the way we live together as believers in Christ. And this doesn't happen overnight. It happens over a lifetime. It doesn't happen because of one sermon or one sermon illustration or one book or one podcast. All of those things can be helpful along the way, but we have to grow in gospel humility over time as we're molded by the word of God, as we become more and more saturated with the power of God's love for us in Christ. And we're all very much a work in progress. Amen? But the gospel foundation has been laid in our hearts. If you're a believer in Christ, it's because you are trusting by faith that you are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and Christ is the only one that God has supplied to fulfill the need of forgiveness. And and we've all been drawn together into this family of God by grace, not by merit, not by works, but by grace. And this gospel foundation, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we need to build on that foundation. And we need to build on it in these ways. We should be growing in our faith, adding virtue and love and wisdom and patience and knowledge and self-control and brotherly love. Spiritual know-it-all is not on that list. Everybody's spiritual referee, not on that list. We are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in us so Although we're not perfect, we're we're going towards perfection, but just because we can accept the fact that we're not perfect today doesn't mean that we should sit on our hands and just let it happen. We need to be growing. We need to be actively loving one another as God in Christ has loved us. And by the way, speaking of the fact that we are God's temple, let's look at the interior of the city. Go back to verse 22. John tells us, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now now think back again to that temple of God in Jerusalem, which you can think about the one that Solomon built. You can think about the one during, uh, the one that Herod was built in Jesus' day. But think about the temple. It was one of the greatest wonders of the ancient world. Solomon's temple specifically, when it was destroyed, The people of God wept because of how beautiful and how important the city was. And then years later, when another generation of God's people rebuilt the city, they wept again because the new temple wasn't anywhere close to as glorious as the old temple. The temple holds this beautiful place, this important, significant place in the hearts of God's people. It's one of the most important structures on earth. Because that's the place where God's spirit dwells. That's the place where God's people come back together. That's the place where forgiveness was, uh, atonement was made. All of that is part of the temple. It was the place where God's glory could be seen on the earth. It was all of those things. But as important as, and as beautiful as the earthly temple was, it was nothing more than a symbol. It was an earth-scale model of the heavenly reality. And God's plan all along has been to remove the temple altogether. God's plan from the beginning was to have a place where God and his people could dwell together. The temple was that structure that allowed that to happen, but the temple is no longer necessary. 
Through Jesus Christ, God has made a way for us to come into his presence and to dwell together with him. God and man are reconciled. We receive forgiveness of our sins, which Jesus offers to all those who believe. And now, this vision is helping us understand that the temple is no longer necessary. We no longer need this structure. We no longer need this place where we can come back together with God. He's going to make it so that we can come back into his very presence without the need of a temple. And that's the, that's the symbolism here. God's dwelling place is with man. The temple is no longer necessary. The saints in the city of God are never beyond the boundaries of God's holy presence. The city has no temple, nor does it have any sun. Look at verse 23. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its light or his lamp is the Lamb. Now, the, the whole rest of chapter 22 is relying upon Isaiah 60. You might see that footnote in your Bible. This particular verse here is, is almost a direct reflection of Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 19. Only here, John changes the last line of the verse. When Isaiah was prophesying about this in Isaiah 60, he was prophesying about the future heavenly Jerusalem. And when he said that the, the sun and moon were no longer needed, he said it was God's glory that would be the light for the people of God. Well, John changes that and says the Lamb is going to serve as that light. And both John and Isaiah are making the same point. There is no light that compares to the glory of being in the presence of God. This verse is not necessarily saying that there will be no sun and no moon as though those things cease to function in the new heaven and new earth. It's basically trying to say, symbolically, those things are no longer needed because God's glory is there. And look, I said this from the beginning of chapter 21. If your vision of heaven is more fixated on gold and jewels and pearls and all of that stuff and not the fact that we are going to live in the presence of God, then you've misunderstood the biblical understanding of heaven. There is no heaven without God there. And it's heaven because God is there. And the fact that we get to be there is a mercy and grace from God. This, this whole thing is about reflecting the glory of God. And we get to share in that. By the way, look at verse 24. Those things are no longer needed because the glory of God is so bright and by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And this is a really interesting passage and there's a lot of different questions that come up. Some will say that the fact that nations are being referred to here is a, a picture of this this last-ditch opportunity for unbelievers to come into the presence of God, and that couldn't be further from the truth. The, the word nations is being used here in the same way that throughout the, the Revelation we see that Jesus has people, and he's calling his people together from every tribe and tongue and people and language. That's how the word nations is being used here. But what are the nations doing? What are these believers from every nation coming to do? They're offering their glory and honor. This is the city of God filled with people from all over the world, from every nationality, and they're bringing something to God. What are they bringing? Well, I think the most reasonable way to interpret this, and there's other interpretations that you can hold, but I think the most reasonable way to interpret this is that they're coming to God and they're offering their worship and their praise. That's their glory and their honor. 
They're offering their unique worship and praise. Have you ever gone on a mission trip and you've been with a people who don't speak your native language and you've listened to them worship God? Or we would go to Haiti and Hopefully, by God's grace, we'll get to go back sometime soon. But we would, we would go into Haiti, and they would sing songs in Haitian Creole. And I had no idea the words they were saying, but I knew the tune. I knew the song. And it was this weird thing where I could sing that hymn in English, and they were singing that hymn in Creole. And, and, and I had this in mind, and I thought, this is something of a little snapshot of what heaven's going to be like. These nations are coming because they've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Their names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. They have repented of their sin. They've trusted in Christ. They may have died in their faith or they may have been persecuted to the point of death and they are coming and they are offering their glory and and honor to God. They are bringing themselves. They're not bringing their physical wealth. In that glorified eternal state, we 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 don't take our stuff with us. We're taking ourselves. That's all we have. And we're offering what we have. And what we have is praise and worship for the God who brought us there. Men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language have come. All been purchased by the blood of Christ. They've all become part of God's family. Not because they earned it, but by believing and trusting in Jesus. And they've come to worship Christ. One commentator summarizes this passage this way. It says, The nations no longer claim glory for themselves independently from God as they formerly did in their idolatrous allegiance to the beast, but now they acknowledge that all honor and glory belong to God and Him only. See, there's going to be great diversity in heaven, but at the same time, perfect unity. Because our focus is going to be on God and the Lamb. Not on our little squabbles, not on our theological differences, not on our political opinions, not on our cultural differences and ethnic differences, but on God and the Lamb. And this stream uh, to God, this worship and this stream of people coming to God will never cease because the gates of the city will never close. And, And... I think that's symbolic as well. In ancient cities, in in the ancient world, when the sun went down, the gates of the city had to be closed. And they had to be closed so that you could protect yourself from enemy attack, right? And that's the picture here. It's not, there are no enemies left. We've been reading this for a long time. There are no enemies left. They've all been judged. They've all been cast into the lake of fire. There's no enemies left. So the point is that the city doesn't need to be closed anymore. The gates will remain open because we are completely safe, completely secure. When's the last time you can remember, maybe you were a child, but when's the last time you can remember leaving the, the door to your house or the door to your truck or the gate to your backyard completely unlocked with no concern that somebody might get into it and take something? If you can remember a day like that, then here's why you would leave those doors unlocked, because you felt completely safe, completely secure. No enemies coming to you. Nothing's going to creep in the door. No dark thing, no wicked thing, nothing with evil intentions is coming to get you, so you can be completely safe. And that's the point here. That's the picture. When we are with God in that state, we are completely safe. The city will not be invaded by anything 
even anything unclean. Look at verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And here's why I think that that idea of the nation's coming here gives, is like a second opportunity for salvation. Here's why I don't think that that fits at all, because in the context, only believers in Christ are in the city. No one else belongs. Sin has no business here. Unbelievers aren't allowed here. The word unclean refers to anything that is unholy or impure. The nations will be allowed to bring their worship to God, but only those from the nations whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In other words, there is no second opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Those who refuse to turn from their sin and trust in Christ in this life, they have no, no, no hope of accessing heaven in the life to come. The city that has been prepared for Christ and His people is prepared for His disciples only. And I think the, the text is very clear on that. There's so much more here, but I have a few points, a few closing application points. What do we do with all of this? And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, I, I took a lot of these from Joel Beakey. He had some really helpful things to say in, in a couple of these ways, so I'm going to make sure I give credit where credit is due. But I have four concluding points here. What can we do, having seen this picture? First, we should work to enhance the beauty of the church. We should work to enhance the beauty of the church. So much of our Christian service is giving God second best. We work really hard in our nine to fives. We work really hard at home. We, we work really hard on our vacation homes. But when it comes to church, it's like, well, somebody else will take care of that. It's not, un, uh, it's not untrue that in most churches, especially churches, small churches, it's, it, 90% of the work gets done by 10% of the people. Y'all have heard that before. And it is wonderful that you are here. It's wonderful that you are present. It's wonderful that you are taking advantage of the means of grace given to you, afforded to you in Sunday school and prayer meeting and worship. And that's wonderful. But are you working? Are you growing? Are you striving to add something of your own beauty, the, the gifts that God has given to you in service to Christ and the church? Or is the church an afterthought? If so, that's contrary to what God intends the church to be. This heavenly, glorious picture of the church is something we should be striving for now. See, Christ's goal is a beautiful church built with precious stones and shimmering with gold. That's, that's how we should view the church. We should be working to enhance the beauty of Christ's bride through our own service and through our own growth and maturity and through our own hospitality. And getting actively involved, we need to examine the way we view and the way we treat the church and ask ourselves this question, is this beautifying God's church? We need to be working to enhance the beauty of the church today. Secondly, keep the way to Christ open to all who will come. We need to ask ourselves, does our church have an open door an open gate to the north and the south and the east and the west. Meaning, do we truly welcome people 
in all of these doors, no matter what their language, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter their socioeconomic status or their background or their history of sin, are we open to all seeking to win all sinners to the Savior? We have been called by God in this age to preach the gospel indiscriminately to every human being that we come into contact with. There is no dividing wall in the church. The gospel is freely offered to all who will believe. People coming from all walks of life, all conditions, we don't put any restrictions on access to the gospel. It is free. All are welcome. No matter how bad their sins may be, all are welcome if they will come to Christ with the empty hands of faith. And we need to maintain that. Let's not, let's not become a church that wants to exclude people if they don't think like us or believe like us. We can help them grow. But our primary reason for being here is to proclaim the word of God and that is going to be highlighted by the gospel at every turn. And that means God's going to draw men and women to himself through that ministry and we need to maintain a, a, a strong faithfulness to that. So keep the way to Christ open to all who will come. Third, and this is incredibly important as well, secure the foundations in God's word and mission. A lot of imagery and um, terminology here talking about the foundations of this city. What is our foundation as a church? The word of God and the gospel of Christ. There's a, there's a statement. We are an unashamedly Reformed Baptist church. And there's a statement that came out of the Protestant Reformation. And I'll summarize that statement the way we typically summarize it. It is Semper Reformanda. Has anybody ever heard that before? Semper Reformanda. It's part of a larger statement um, that's, that basically says this, that the church is reformed and always being reformed by the Word of God. By the word of God. The church is reformed. In other words, we're being shaped, we're being renewed in the gospel, and we're always being shaped and renewed in the gospel according to the word of God. So we must secure our foundations as a people and as a church in God's word and in God's mission. We ought to always be striving according to the word of God to stay faithful to Christ. There is no point in our life as a, as a body of believers together when we can say something like, well, I don't care what the Word of God says, I'm going to do this. Or I don't care that, that that's out there, I think this would be a really good thing for us to do. The Bible is our foundation from start to finish. And every new ministry, every new opportunity, every new decision has got to be determined, has got to be examined based upon the Word of God. The Bible is the foundation of the church, and the only guarantee, this is a, a quote from Beaky. the only guarantee that a church will stay on course and survive and continue to grow is that we keep coming back to Scripture. We keep reforming our own lives and our church's life and everything else in light of what we read in God's Word. That's got to serve as our constant foundation. And then here's my last point. I'll rehash those. Work to enhance the beauty of the church. Keep the way to Christ open to all who will come. Secure the foundations in God's word and mission. And then the fourth is a question. Will you dwell in this eternal city of God? In other words, have you recognized your sin in light of God's holiness? 
Have you come to see your need for Christ to forgive your sin and secure your place in heaven at his side? Do you believe the gospel, the good news? And are you ready to turn away from your sin to follow Jesus? However hopeless you think you are, there is a way to come into the celestial city. Jesus said it this way. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be saved. That's John 10, 9. You don't need any key. You don't need anything other than the key of faith. But if you will come to Christ with the empty hands of faith and receive from him what he is freely offering, then this city, as glorious as it is, will be your eternal destination. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for this opportunity to study it together, to think about it, to preach it, to proclaim it, and to, and to try to find ways to apply it to our hearts and lives. But that's only our attempts. We need you. We need your spirit to press these truths deep in our hearts. We need you to help us to, to grasp what you have revealed and to respond to it in a way that is faithful and brings you glory. And so I pray now for those among us that you would strengthen our trust in you, that you would spur us on to love and good deeds, that we would be a church striving to see something more of the beauty and glory of the church now, even though we know we are imperfect and the glory that is truly to come is something far beyond what we can experience in this life, but we can strive for it. And so help us to love one another well, to serve one another well, to grow in Christ so that we can have something to offer each other when we come together. And Lord, help us to keep our gates open. Help us to remember the responsibility we've been given to proclaim the gospel and making disciples of all nations. Let us be a part of that, and I pray that you would keep us faithful there and that you would allow us to bear fruit in that effort. And Lord, I pray that our foundation would never shift away from your word and away from your gospel that at every turn we would be asking ourselves, what does God's word say? And Father, I do pray for those among us today who don't know you. I pray that the hope of heaven, the hope of salvation, and the truth of the gospel would bear fruit in their hearts for your glory and their joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.